The reading for today is Revelation 14, 1 through 3, and 6 through 12. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the wrath, into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you're new, welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia, and we are glad that you are here, and we are working our way through the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 14 today, so if you could turn there, that's the only place we'll be this morning. Uh, a couple things before we get started. We had a great time at uh, Fallapalooza, our annual Fallapalooza last night. I will mention, though, that um, other than the candy at Fallapalooza, the most popular thing is the dunk tank, and um, our, our student director, uh, Emmett, I've never seen anybody have that much fun getting dunked. I mean, he was cheering for the kids to to hit the thing, and then I was the last one to go. Trey was in the middle, and then I was the last one to go, and um, I just, I'm warning you, I got a lot of water up my nose last night at the dunk tank, and so my voice might sound a little off today. Uh, that's why. The other thing, and I was reminded of it this morning, the other thing is, you know, guys, I don't, I don't hate the Arizona Diamondbacks. I don't know why there's, I'll, you know, listen, the Suns, have a curse on them. There's nothing anybody can do about that. They're never going to win an NBA championship unless it's truly a mosaic curse and they finally enter the promised land after I die. And I would be Mo Moses in this metaphor. I, I'm thrilled for the Diamondbacks and the Diamondbacks have won a championship. There's no curse on the Diamondbacks. They, they could win this. I hope they do win this. I think they might win this whole thing. So, I, you know, yeah, you know. It's not all Arizona sports. Look, just the Cardinals are just bad, and the, and the Coyotes, the Coyotes have been rebuilding for 30 years and are still rebuilding. But the Diamondbacks have a chance, so let's encourage them and be and be happy about that. I'm so glad I got that off my chest. Here we go. We are in week eight of Revelation, and we're in chapter 14. Um, Revelation is the vision of those things 
that are to come in the last days. And, and, if, and if you're new to this, uh, I would encourage you to go to our website and you can either watch or listen to. We have our YouTube channel where you can watch the previous seven weeks of this series if you want to get up to date. And um, we also have audio archives if you just want to listen to it as well. Um, more recently, we've been talking about this sort of interlude of chapters 12, 13, and 14 um, between the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which then introduces the seven bowls or uh, cups of wrath of God with the plagues and all of that. That's all going to happen next week. But we're in this sort of interlude that, that, that primarily talks about um, trying to prepare Christians, those who follow Christ, for the unpleasant reality that as the end draws near, uh, the harassment, persecution, and sacrifice of those who believe in Jesus is just going to be increased um, more and more exponentially and eventually to unimaginable heights, and we, we need to be ready for that. Um, two weeks ago, chapter 12 was the vision of the cosmic battle. We had a, a dragon, which is Satan, and then we had the pregnant uh, woman, and there was this battle between Satan, the dragon, and the angels of heaven, and he was cast out of heaven for the last time. That's it. He's done. Um, but, but he wasn't done fighting, and so he comes to earth, and then in chapter 13, we have what is known as the earthly battle, where the two beasts that emanate from the dragon take on the saints of those who know Jesus uh, on the earth, and that's what, what the vision was of chapter 13, including the mark of the beast and, and all of that which we covered last week. And those visions in chapters 12 and 13 are challenging and they're not very pretty, but now in chapter 14, while there is still what one scholar would call uh, quite a bit of doom-centered visions and imagery, there's still some of that in chapter 14. Chapter 14 also then introduces us to some measure of hope and encouragement for those who are in Christ, who are having to uh, feel the weight and pressure of this, uh, of this oppression and persecution. So we're going to work through every verse, essentially, in chapter 14, starting with verses 1 through 5. Andrea read us 1 through 3, and then she jumped to 6. And the reason is because 4 and 5, they're pretty wild, and, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on those trying to help us understand what they mean. So John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This would be Jesus. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters like, uh, and, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So, wow, this thunderous voice and then harps playing. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the li four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." So the, the first thing we talk about here is Mount Zion. Um, most people, whether they've been part of church or not, uh, they've heard the word or the place Zion. And so why is that being used here? And there are actually four different interpretations of Mount Zion being used here. And I would argue that actually 
all four of them are right and correct about what's happening with the use of Mount Zion here. So, because ultimately they all point to the same thing. The first one is this. In Old Testament prophetic tradition, Zion is the place where the Messiah will gather a great company of the redeemed. So that's obviously happening. He's gathered a great company of the redeemed, the 144,000, which actually represents all of the redeemed. It's not a literal 144,000. Second of all, in Old Testament apocalyptic literature, Zion symbolizes or represents the strength, the, the strength and security that belongs to the people of God. And that is certainly true in this case as well. Then in the New Testament, there is this implied connection between Zion and Jesus' church, the church of Jesus Christ. So it'd be a connection with, with us, which is, again, certainly true. And then finally, in relation to a heavenly vision, which is what we have here, uh, it is the seat of the messianic kingdom coming to earth, which is also known as the New Jerusalem is on its way. The New Jerusalem is actually sort of packing up its bags and getting ready to come down to restore the old heavens and the old earth. And all of this points to Jesus and his reign and his people and the fact that they live, even though we're still fighting the battles, they live, we live in utter and complete victory over Satan. And then there's the lamb. And the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And the imagery here is so important to get, I believe, but it's very easy to miss. The lamb is Jesus standing on the solid rock of Zion, the solid, unshakable, immovable Mount Zion, contrasted with the end of chapter 12, where the dragon, Satan, is standing on the shifting sands of the shoreline. So there's this picture of the solid nature, the foundation of being in Christ, and then the shifting sand, the problems with, with knowing and following uh, not Jesus, following the world, following culture, following Satan himself, whatever that is, and realizing that you're constantly looking for something new, the next thing, the new face of whatever it is that is trying to be your redeemer and savior, but is not Jesus, and that becomes a problem. Then there's the 144,000, and this is the confirmation of the same 144,000 from chapter 7. But again, it's just a symbolic nature that represents all of the redeemed. And then the Father's name is written on their forehead. Again, this is in contrast to those who have the mark of the beast. Uh, these with the Father's name written on their forehead clearly belong to God. And so, again, here's just sort of a cultural nuance. We live in a world where the culture and the world tells us there's no such thing as binaries. Binaries are a construct. Binaries are wrong. There's nothing that's a binary. And yet here we have a binary. Once again, in Scripture, there are those who have the mark of God and there are those who have the mark of beast. And there's no neutral area where you don't have either mark and, 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 you, and you get to just sort of stand with your camp in either both camps or neither camp, but but in either situation, you're telling yourself that you're okay, you're going to survive all of this. That's just not true. You're either with God or you're not with God. And the Bible has been clear about that throughout. And then verses 2 and 3. So it describes this voice that's coming, first of all, as this uh, peal of thunder, this loud uh, thunder, and, and then the water's pounding, um, the sound of water's pounding. I, I asked this in the first 
in the first service. I was very disappointed. Only one person has ever been there. Has anybody ever gone to Niagara Falls? See, look at yeah, you, see, you people know how to live. I'm telling you. Anyway, so did you did you ride the boat to beneath it, or did you ever stand below? I mean, it just uh, from I've never been there, but from what I understand, when you get close to it, you can't even hear yourself speak. And and the point of the point of that is that you stand there and you hear that, and you feel so small. You feel the power. You feel the authority of that water. There's nothing you can do against that water. You are overwhelmed by that waterfall. But at the same time, the voice is also described as these harps playing. So what's going on? Has has anybody in this room ever been intimidated by a harp? (laughs) Or somebody playing a harp? You ever walk into a room and somebody's playing a harp and you're like, no, and you run out? Just frightened to death? No. No, see, see, these are both happening at the same time. You have the pounding water and the beautiful harps. Consider this. Jesus is both grace and truth. Jesus is mercy and justice. Jesus is salvation and judgment. He is, he is authority and he is submission. He is both of these things, all of these things, all at the same time. And the 144,000 are singing a new song, a song that only the redeemed know and only the redeemed can sing because only the redeemed sinners, those who know they are sinners and redeemed by the grace and the love and the power of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, they know that song to be able to sing. So if you're somebody who's been redeemed by the grace of the gospel through Jesus Christ, when we're up here, not me, thankfully, but when Caleb and his team are up here leading us in song, sing, sing with, with joyful hearts. And now we come to what might be one of the most challenging verses to interpret in all of Revelation. It's verse 4, and I'm going to read 4 and 5 together because even in 5, there's some challenges there as well. Here's 4 and 5. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women... For they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. I, just First of all, that little phrase, they've been redeemed from mankind. We've talked so much in this series about how if, if you reject God, you reject the gospel, you reject Jesus, essentially what you're doing is no matter what you choose to follow in this world, you're essentially embracing yourself. You're embracing humanism. You're saying, I am sufficient. I am enough. I've got this figured out. I know what I should be following. I don't need God. And yet, the Bible calls that being revealed, redeemed from mankind. You're being redeemed from yourself, essentially. And that's what God is saying here. Because it's just not uncommon for us to believe that we've got it all figured out and we don't necessarily need God. But then it says that they're, they're all virgins. So what in the wide world of sports does that mean? So, so only virgins get into heaven. That's the final. I'm kidding. That's not what it says, okay? Now, there are four different possible interpretations here. And I think there's merit somewhat to each one. The first one, not so much. But, and I haven't really decided, but I'll tell you that I do lean towards one of them. It's the number three that I'm going to give you. I lean towards that one. Um, but the first um, possible explanation that I've read about is it's just men who never got married. So I, I don't think this is right because it makes no uh, sense 
contextually or historically or even theologically. Here's the second explanation, which I think is not bad. This is pretty good. In the Old Testament, one of the regulations for engaging in holy war, which this is, was that you had to abstain from sex for a certain amount of time before you went into war. And so that's what it could be uh, indicating. I think that's not a bad explanation. Here's the one I tend to lean to. Um, This is a metaphor indicating that the, quote, virgins refrain from involving themselves in or embracing the harlotry of the corrupt systems of Babylon, of, of any system or fad of culture at any time in history, including now, that simply denies the authority of Jesus. So some would call this spiritual adultery or spiritual apostasy or simply idolatry. And like I said, because of the symbolism language that is used throughout Revelation, I tend to lean here, and this idea that you're keeping yourself away from these anti-God systems of thought and expression. And then number four, I struggled with it first, but then I began to think about it a little bit. But number four is, uh, these are people who have never engaged in promiscuous sexual relationships. Promiscuous. Or it, uh, sexual immorality that's out of, the, out of the bounds of marriage. Okay, And I thought, no, at first, this seems to deny the redemption available through Jesus. But then I started thinking about the redemption that's available through Jesus. And of course, that sin would be wiped clean by Jesus. So this is even a possible explanation as well. But one reason I lean towards that third uh, uh, explanation is Revelation's emphasis, not only on symbolic literature, but also its emphasis on the sins of idolatry and loyalty to Satan and his corrupt systems in the world and culture. You know, if you're faithful to God, you will also recognize the grace and power of the gospel in your life. And you will resist idolatry, false gods, you'll resist sexual immorality, and you'll resist rebellion against God. And that is the scope of that third explanation. Now, there's two other items in these verses that we need to touch on before we move into the rest of chapter 14. Uh, First of all, it says, uh, the first fruits for God and the Lamb. That's in verse 4. First fruits are symbolically and literally both set aside or consecrated to God and indicate that there is more to come. So there's still a harvest of more believers who are still on earth. And then verse 5, it says that no lie was found in them. This, excuse me, this lie is specifically the lie of blasphemy when one assimilates into the corrupt culture, systems, and wickedness of Satan's rule on earth whether they do it ignorantly or whether they do it arrogantly or both, it doesn't matter. They have assimilated into Satan's rule on earth. In other words, they are refusing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. And by the way, let's make this clear. We have the opportunity to clear this up today. That is the, the one unforgivable sin. It is refusing to believe in Jesus. That's the unforgivable sin. Everything else, you come to Christ, wipe clean. Everything else. Um, my, my mother, before she came to Christ, she told me for years, I have got to clean myself up before I can present myself to Jesus. You can't do it. 
It's Jesus who does that for you. So just come to him as you are. And everything is forgiven. The only thing that isn't forgiven is not coming to Jesus. So now we're ready to work through verses 6 through 12. I'm sorry, 6 through 20. These verses are primarily intended to give hope to those who are in Christ about all this stuff that's going to be happening, um, but also one last time warns the arrogant and oblivious sinner. So let's look at verses 6 through 11 first. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all nations drink the wine and the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So in these six verses, three angels come forward to proclaim not only the gospel to those who are still on earth at the time of these last things, but also to warn those who have arrogantly and ignorantly dug in against God. And understand, we say ignorantly, or maybe you could use the word obliviously, because we acknowledge that some people simply do not comprehend. They believe there's some sort of neutrality where they don't have to worry about it. They don't comprehend that by settling into the world's and cultural systems, sin, and mores, they are in fact embracing Satan. Nevertheless, it is virtually always, even if it's ignorantly, it's virtually always done with some edge of arrogance in it. Um, Psalm 73, I think, is a beautiful picture of that. Psalm 73 was written by Asaph, and he's lamenting how uh, those who reject God seem to live this wonderful, beautiful life without a care in the world. But in the end, of course, they are going to have their problems. But here's how he describes it, some excerpts from Psalm 73. I was envious of the arrogant, for pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their hearts overflow with folly or foolishness. They scoff and they speak with malice and they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth and they say, how can God know? Well, God does know. That's the point. And although there's a great harvest of believers that is coming in Revelation, the harvest always starts with a purge. There has to be judgment as well. And that purge is in these verses and with these things. It's verses 7 through 10 that we looked at here, a little core of this last group of verses that we read. These describe the three great virtues, and I put those in quotes, the three great virtues not only of today's world, but of the world ever since time uh, began, true of all centuries. So these are the three great virtues, dogmatic virtues of the world. Here's the first one in verse 7. No judgment. You're not allowed to judge 
anyone or anything else. None. No judgment. Now, why does our culture, why do people fight so hard to villainize judgment? Why does that happen? You ever ask yourself that question? Here's the reason why. If other people's sin can be judged, eventually they're going to get around to judging your sin as well. And the last thing you want is for anybody to turn that judgment around and start examining you. If you, if you look at what goes on on social media and digital communication, it's fascinating to me how people willingly go out and live these very public lives and eventually they get sucked into that, that whole movement of pointing their fingers at everybody else who's doing it wrong and then suddenly those fingers start coming and pointing back at them. That's, that's horrible. That's awful. Nobody wants that to happen. And so that's why we live in this world that claims no judgment. That's why we live in a world where people inside the church and outside the church, all of them seem to know Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Anybody know that verse? Sure you do. Jesus says... Do not judge, lest you will be judged. Boom! And people will say, that's it. That's the end of the sermon. That's it right there. They think that Matthew 7 has one verse. That's the end of the verse. That's the end of the paragraph. That's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the end of the New Testament. That's the end of the Bible. It's just Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge. Nobody can judge. Nobody should judge. They don't seem to understand the context of Matthew 7, 1. And they take it completely out of context. Jesus is saying that because then he goes on to explain, before you do judge somebody else, you need to do some self-assessment and self-judging of yourself. You need to work through that first before you go somewhere else. You need to take that plank out of your eye before you go and remove the little splinter in somebody else's eye. Nevertheless, you are called to go and remove that little splinter. You just need to do it well. So there is judgment. But the world says that it's a great sin to judge anything or anyone else, no matter what. The world says that to judge something is not loving. And this is not just a 21st century phenomenon. This has been true for centuries. Blah, 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 yada, 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 on and on and on. There's nothing new under the sun. And yes, verses 6 and 7 are about faithfully proclaiming the gospel in any and every situation, context, and era. But verses 6 and 7 also proclaim that there is judgment coming. And if there's no judgment of sin, then what in the wide world of sports do we need gospel for? Why would we need good news if there isn't bad news? Why would we need Jesus to go to the cross if there's no judgment of sin and sinners? Why would we even come to church on Sunday morning? Why would we do any of this if there is no judgment of sin? There's no point in doing any of that. So you might escape the judgment of this world, but not God's kingdom. Here's the second one. This is in verse 8. This is the anything goes sexuality and gender identity and the cultures and even most governments tyrannical, baked in from the beginning, and systematic, purposeful, and policy-driven enforcement of these behaviors and mores. This rebellious, anti-Christian, anything-goes cultural ethos, as the great New Testament scholar George Beasley Murray writes, faces doom if there is no repentance and response to the gospel call. And you see in that verse, it says, fallen, fallen is 
Babylon. It's written as if it has already happened because at the cross of Jesus and the resurrection three days later, the victory has already happened. The victory is sure, but the consummation of that victory is yet to come. Trey described it a couple of weeks ago when he preached. He said D-Day was when World War II was won, but we still had to fight for another year afterwards. We're kind of in that D-Day period right now. And that ultimate final victory, the consummation of the victory, comes later in the book of Revelation. That's chapter 17 through 20, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. And then Babylon, we need to remember Babylon, again, is not a literal Babylon or Baghdad or Paris or Las Vegas or Singapore, but rather it is a symbolic representation of the system cultural or governmental, that specifically rebels passively or actively against God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the third, quote, virtue. Blind, arrogant allegiance to anything anti-God. That's in verses 9 and 10. And this is a clear warning against any allegiance to Satan. Any allegiance, whether it's knowing allegiance, passive allegiance, or ignorant allegiance. Any allegiance whatsoever. And verse 10 has some particularly strong language, two items. There's the wine of God's wrath, which the oblivious, arrogant sinners will drink and notice its full strength. Now, why full strength? Because in antiquity, you know, wine was about all you would really drink in antiquity. And one of the reasons was because uh, wine was used to help purify the water that they would drink. So most wine that you would drink would be watered down in order to mitigate the effects of wine. Um, Maybe somebody in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, maybe somebody in this room has had a glass or two or six of wine, and you understand the effects of wine. Well, when you water it down, it helps to mitigate the effects of that. But when God's wrath comes, it is full strength. There's no watering down of this wrath. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross the very next day. He prayed to God. He said, Father, you know, if there's another way, would you let this cup pass before me? He's talking about the cup. Another word for cup would be bowl, the bowl or the cup of God's wrath that was poured out full strength on Jesus for our sin. So that cup or bowl of wrath is never paid out for those of us who are in Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. That is beautiful. And we should embrace that. This wine of God's wrath will not be watered down. And then fire and sulfur refers all the way back to the judgment of the sexual immorality that took place in the little town of Sodom in Genesis 19 and God's response to that thoroughly debased and unrepentant situation. But also you see that fire and sulfur are common symbolic characteristics of hell. And both descriptions of the doom and fall of Babylon, again, Babylon representing the beast, quote, of any government, culture, or system, systemic rebellion against God. It's representative of those things. And it could be 6th century B.C. Babylon. It could be 3rd century Greece. It could be 1st century Rome. Here you go. It's about to get really uncomfortable up in here now. It could be 20th or 21st century United States of America. You understand that? When we rebel against God, there are going to be problems with that. Um. I've just found that there's often, this won't surprise some of you that know me, but I've just found there's often 
in church and, of course, outside of church, an outright glossing over of difficult truths that are found in the Bible. But since they're in the Bible, and we say that we believe the Bible, and we are a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, they must be true. Yes, I love the Bible. I, I agree with the Bible. I embrace the Bible, except those parts that are really inconvenient for me. Okay, you don't believe the Bible then, okay? Here's how the New Testament scholar Kenneth Barker states it. In the end, the question is not whether the doctrine of hell is detestable, but whether it is true. See, it may be detestable to you, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. There are medical diagnoses, medical diagnoses that are detestable, right? Detestable. Does that mean that they aren't true? No. They're still true. We need to remember that detestable does not disqualify something's veracity. And so that's the challenge that we have here. And so as we unpack verses 12 through 20, they are then the reward of those who stay steadfast in their faith and resist the tyranny of these three worldly virtues that we just talked about. So verses 12 and 13. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is the second chapter in a row where we've had this call to those who know Jesus to stay steadfast in the faith. That's the great defense against this. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So there's still a chance to repent. Still a chance to repent. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow, for their deeds follow them. The section of warning for the oblivious, oblivious arrogant, and ignorant sinner is over, and the judgment uh, and condemnation of those who worship the lie and mock God, it is imminent now. And verses 12 and 13 is a clear transition statement into uh, talking about the insurance and hope that those who are in Christ have and, and need to worship him in truth. And these verses also make clear that the worshipers of Babylon and Babylon's beast will be unable to rest ever, in contrast with believers in the gospel who will rest from their labors associated with their faith in Jesus and believing the truth. Jesus says himself, come to me, all of you who are, who are just tired, worn out, and and." and and, and weighed down, come to me. Because if you're not in Christ, you're going to spend the rest of your life figuring out, oh, I finally found that thing that gives me purpose and fulfillment and nirvana and utopia or whatever it is. I finally found that ideology, that issue, that wealth, that whatever it is, I finally found it only to find after a little while that it doesn't really work as promised, and then you're on to the next thing. It's what our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say all the time, false gods never fail to fail. That's why Jesus says you can come to me and you can rest. And the toil of the believer will not go in vain. It just won't. And then verses 14 through 16. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. 
So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Uh, this one on the cloud is, uh, is Jesus. And, and some say that there's no way that the one sitting on the cloud can be Jesus because Jesus would never take orders from an angel. I, I beg to differ. First of all, this one seated on the cloud is the Son of Man. And if you read the book of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, you know that the Son of Man is specifically the Messiah. It's the only reference that Daniel makes about the Messiah is the Son of Man, repeatedly, in the book of Daniel. Second of all, uh, also, by the way, let me just remind you of this. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. So even the Messiah says, Son of Man is the Messiah. So that seems to be pretty convincing. Second of all, what the angel says is not so much an order as it is a proclamation. And, and third, even so, even if it is an order, uh, Jesus is the epitome of humility. I mean, he went to the cross for crying out loud. You think he's not going to listen to an angel of God who says, hey, you need to go and do this. No. Did you know I'm Jesus? He used to say that to his brothers all the time, I'm sure. But at any rate... Now that that's out of the way, the more important thing to discuss here is this harvest, this reaping, and, and two items to note here. The harvest, as we've seen, is not just about salvation, but it is also a manifestation of judgment for those who miss the message that God is trying to give to them. How many, how many chances does somebody who doesn't believe need? This is like, this is like God establishing his bona fides, his, his, him saying, I did everything I could. You, you can't cast blame on me. I've done everything I could. And then second of all, judgment is, and salvation, as we'll see, is played out in Revelation through both plagues and safeguarding, through both condemnation and mercy, through both purging and reaping, through both salvation and judgment. And then these last four verses, and there is a yikes factor to these last four verses. I'll just warn you up front. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes, the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. That's a symbol of hell. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So it looks like the judgment part of the harvest is not quite finished. So some uh, questions to answer here. Verse 18 the authority over the fire. Now, what's the fire? Fire symbolizes both God's vindication of those who have been persecuted and martyred for their faith and his judgment on those who persecuted and martyred the Christians. In verses 18 and 19, what is the grape harvest? You know, ordinarily, grapes, the, grapes are good, right? Can I get an amen? I mean, grapes are good, right? Right, my, uh, Jackie, I love grapes. So Jackie calls them little sugar bombs, and they are. I mean, it's just, you know, I, just, I, don't, I don't like soft grapes, and raisins are kind of stupid, but I love grapes, okay? Um, but also from grapes uh, comes wine. And so there's, you, why is this a problem? The problem is, is that here, grapes become another representation of God's judgment 
on those who persecuted his people. And they are going to be put through the wine press of God's wrath. Again, vindication. And listen, I want to hit this just for a second. God is not vindictive, but he is holy and he will judge sinners and he will vindicate his people. Here's another way to say it. God is not spiteful, but he does justify. And we should be glad for that. You know, it's amazing how much you and I really want justice. Don't we want justice? You see an unjust situation, you say there needs to be justice for that. But then when it comes around to us doing something unjust, we're not that excited about justice anymore. What we're excited about is grace and mercy, right? You see how that that works? Well, God gives both grace and justice according to his good and perfect measure. And finally, verse 20 Outside the city, as I said, is a reference to the city dump where trash was burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it was always used by Jesus and other prophetic writers as an apocalyptic vision of what hell is like. And, that, and the blood that flowed, it's a lot of blood. And, and, and what it symbolizes is the complete justified and perfection of God's condemnation for sin. And it's something that the Christian, those in Christ, are spared because of God's grace and mercy through his son. And that's good news. As we end, I I just I have I I have hopes and prayers that you're hearing the call of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, throughout this study. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will have life eternal in his name. I hope and pray that you're receiving the gospel through this study of Revelation. And I hope and pray that this book, um, uh, that, that by studying this book, you are striving ever more to live a gospel-centered life. And I hope and pray that this study is, even in the midst of the challenging language, the challenging images, and the challenging dispositions, I hope it's giving those of us who are in Christ hope, encouragement, and confidence. Amen. Now, do you all remember the blowing of the seventh trumpet from the end of chapter 11 seems like ages ago. Well, next week we're going to find out what the blowing of that seventh trumpet means. We're going to look at, verse, at chapters 15 and 16 and unpack those bowls and plagues. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, God, it's as hard as it might be at times to thank you for your word, we do thank you for your word and its truth. And we thank you that um, you don't hold anything back, that you tell us exactly what's what. And, and you have instructed us, and you have encouraged us, and you have shown us the things that are to take place. And so in that, uh, those of us who know your son should find encouragement and hope. And those of us who don't know your son, I pray that your spirit would be working even now in the hearts and minds of those who don't know Jesus, uh, that you might Call them to your son so that they can rest from all of this. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.